you're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Welcome to Morpha Moments. Welcome to all our our repeat uh, listeners. Thank you for coming back. And welcome to all our new listeners tonight. Um, got a great show. What a great night to tune in. Any parent out there of teenagers, turn up the volume and do not move for the next 45 minutes. Stay seated. Get your notebook out. Get your pens out. You're going to need to take a whole lot of notes about how to deal with uh, with your teenagers and the best way to approach situations that arise on almost an hourly basis. <laughs> so stay tuned. Um, before I introduce our amazing guest tonight, I just want to give you a quick introduction or uh, sort of a repeat introduction of what you've gotten yourself into. My name is Kathleen Smith. I'm the founder of Morph Mom. We're a multimedia company. Uh, we, I founded this about seven years ago. I'd originally been a prosecutor decades and decades ago. Uh, I stopped to have my kids, with always always with the intention of going back, realized uh, that wasn't going to happen. It, there was just no way. I'd been home for just too long and things had changed, and um, I just hadn't kept up with everything. It was impossible. So rather than read the wheel, I decided I couldn't figure out what to do next, but so many women had figured it out. So I decided rather, again, than myself trying to invent something new, I would go out and interview all these women all over the country and tell their stories. And again, originally it began with moms kind of going back to work and how they did it, because that's the situation I was in. But as we, as I did more interviews around the country, I would get calls from people saying, you know, I'm not a mom, but I have a great story that could help someone. Or I never left work, but within my work frame, things transformed and I could share a story. Or it really even morphed into more of, I have a story that could help somebody out there. So really what we do now is we share stories to help people out there looking to connect, get guidance, get support, um, and just sort of feel part of the community as they're going through whatever it is they're going through. So Morph Mom has morphed. We started out with a website. We now have our weekly radio show that you're witnessing tonight. Um, it, it's also a pod. We have a podcast on iTunes. You can go to Morph Mom Moments on iTunes to find it. You can always go to our website, morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, and which will lead you right to iTunes as well. We have small classes for women to try and figure out what their next step is. We have conferences. Uh, we do three a year. We've done um, our, our next, our last one was sold out in Westfield, New Jersey with a big wait list, and we're thrilled to announce it in June. Uh, the very first week of June will be our next conference, and stay tuned when we reveal the location. We're very excited, um, and we uh, also are launching, we're very excited to launch our online club. So what we found was you come to the classes and you come to the conferences, but and you'd be inspired and ready to go, but then the next day would come and you'd have no one to talk to, and you have to wait for the next conference or the next class. So we developed sort of a 24-7 virtual online, an online virtual community where there's always someone to communicate with. We have a closed online group. We're going to have webinars. We're going to have curated content, original content, but always 24-7 support for what's next for you and how we can help you and how we can connect you with who you need to be connected with. So again, to join the club, go to morphone.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O.com. We're really, really excited about it. But I'm also really, really excited about my guest this evening. And as I said, get your pens and pencils out, or pens and papers out, because you really got to take notes. Real, real, real to introduce Dr. Krista Santangelo. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice and on faculty at the University of California in San Francisco. She's been in practice for over 20 years, and her approach to change includes short-term solution-focused work, cognitive behavioral strategies, analytical, and a mindfulness. Uh, she's Yale-trained, also has advanced training in yoga and meditation, with a focus on not just mind, but body healing as well. And most recently, and what we're thrilled to announce and talk about tonight, is her most recent book, A New Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. Um, it's a book that gives parents tips, advice, support to get us through those teen years, which are filled, as many of us know, with joy as well, but also a great deal of struggle and challenge. Um, but through the book, we learn ways to sort of look more for opportunities of growth and positive change, I guess, instead of 
uh, declaring them as struggles as I have seen challenges, but with a more positive outlook to what goes on during that time. Um, and I took this from from something that uh, Chris had written up about, something that the, the Dalai Lama once said, people who drive you craziest are your best teachers. <laughs> and would parents say that <laughs> about our teenagers? I'm not really sure. So, Chris, I'd love to just start off with that quote <laughs> and okay. how appropriate that is to what you do. And welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. Nice to be here. Um, I I couldn't quite hear the question, so just say it one more time. Something got a little, there was a little glitch. Um, oh, sorry. The question, so how did I come up with the quote about the Dalai Lama? Right, right. And how, yeah. how, how often that must come up and what you've done over the past 20 plus years. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I love working with teens and parents. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. And what I notice in my practice, you know, I also work with adults, is that, you know, the parent, and I'm a parent myself, and the parent was all often being driven crazy. Everyone can relate to that. And so the book really emerged with um, my understanding of how change takes place. So in order for people to come into therapy and want to change, there have to be at least two things going on. One is you have to be in some degree of pain or distress. And two, you have to be motivated to change. Those are like the basics. And there's also all the other fancy things we do as psychologists. And what I was noticing was, the people who are the most distressed and the most motivated were the parents. The teenagers are being dragged in by the ear, as you can only imagine. They, you know, got drunk and landed in the ER, or they came home yeah. late again, or, you know, various problems. And they didn't seem too bothered. The only thing that was really bothering them was that their parents were upset. And then the parents were in a lot of distress and motivated to change. So part of my the development of this book was really a very pragmatic um, kind of shift in my thinking around well, who can, I, who can I really help here? Even though the teenage, clearly I also have a lot of teenage um, patients who want to change and are in, in therapy. Many of them, you know, were doing what the developmentally normal things are to do, which is we kind of get in trouble, we figure it out from there. We sort of, you know, leap before we look. Yeah. So that's how the book evolved and the, you know, driving, driving us crazy and learning from it. Um, was sort of the evolution of the strategies that I developed and helping parents to look within at the places where they're getting triggered with their teen's behavior. So as I say, you know, having a child, you kind of feel like you might have the flu. It can be challenging, but at least you don't have to get pneumonia, right? It's sort of like there's challenge and irritation, and then there's like super deadlock, like, this is the most, the worst experience we've each ever had. So my job is sort of helping us to stay out of that zone. Do you oftentimes get, and you were saying sometimes you'll get the teenagers alone, but do you often get pairings of parents coming in with their teenagers together? So you mean in doing the work sort of in the set, in the, in the room together? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of, you know, I work in any way that is that works, and sometimes... I have parents and teens together. Um, usually, I, I keep things separate just because um, I kind of, you know, it's kind of scientifically keeping the experiment with the fewest variables possible. Right. Like one teen or one parent, there's enough to go on, you know. So you mix it up, and it's like, hmm, where do we start here? <laughs> so I do. I work, you know, in any way that's helpful. But usually, I'm 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 going for the deepest the place where each person is in the most pain and we kind of have to get there and then unwind that. And usually if we have the two people in the room, we stay on the surface stuff like, but you said this and then, no, but right. you said that. We all know that conversation. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every day, you mean the Groundhog Day yeah. conversation? <laughs> exactly. It comes up all the time. Well, yeah. but it, so we were, um, before we went on air, Chris and I were speaking a little bit about this and how, you know, I I've gone, I'm almost on the opposite end of the teenagers, which is a good thing. Um, but, you know, the age-old problems that you that our parents went through and, you know, their parents went through and you kind of expected with the teenage years and the, the rebellion and they're going to challenge you and they're going to push it and how hard are they going to push it, which was expected and was, you know, very challenging. But at least it seemed a little bit more controllable. But when you throw in modern technology and social media and just what can happen now between, you know, 
cyberbullying and texting and and everyone being perfect on in, you know on the, on their Instagram and, and Facebook portraits and pictures and personas. Have you seen a change over the years? Has that brought in a whole new element into this challenge between parents and, and teens? Yes, absolutely. And I think you know I've developed a um, a social media resilience scale based clinically based on my observations of teenagers and their capacity to manage social media. So just a few words on this. You know, clearly it's something we have to manage. It's not going away. Um, At the same time, developmentally, teens are in a very vulnerable place in terms of how they see themselves and how they react to the world around them. So they're still developing that sense of I'm good enough within myself and I don't need to be who everyone wants me to be. So that piece obviously gets um, highly impacted by social media, which, you know, puts a child in 24-7 exposure to the views of other other children and other teenagers. Yes. So, you know, so we have seen a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicide with, um, you know, the, the, the prevalence of, of social media. So I like to tell parents, you know, there's a few factors I look for in terms of introducing social media. First of all, I'd say wait as long as you can. You know, Bill Gates gave his daughter a phone when she was 14. You know, I think he had knew something about technology. So does your yes. teen have a secure sense of self? Is there a healthy bond between you and your parent? And do they have a relatively stable emotional constitution and at least a moderate EQ, which is emotional intelligence? So, again, social media is going to um, kind of press and, and test the teenager's sense of self, the teenager's bond with the parent, right? They're in the room with the phone, not with you, and also their sense of emotional stability because, as we know, based on how the Internet is set up, the dopamine hit comes and the intermittent reinforcement comes with the most extreme emotions. So they're not, you know, they're not um, rewarding kids who just emerge from meditation. It's like, you seem so calm and together. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Internet is rewarding the most hysterical, the most, you know, extreme behaviors. So so we want to make sure that our teen is stable. So, yeah, it's it's something that I I've definitely seen aggravate depression. I, th- I would say most stable teens, especially teens that have particular interests, I see that they really can use social media well, following their favorite artist, following their favorite mm-hmm. musician. So it's, it's not something that's all bad, of course, but it's just something that is an additional factor, an additional input that we need to support our teens to navigate. And, you know, even, even with showing, you know, way back when you knew everybody's going to that party. And, and it was easy for a parent to say, well, that, you don't know that. Well, now, yeah. there's a picture of the party, and everybody's at the party. And yeah. Like, even that kind of battle that can ensue yeah. because of it. And Absolutely. Like, it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> now what do we do? Right. I mean, fear of missing out, FOMO, yeah. is more more exaggerated. And, you know, you, you, again, you have to have, you have to be a healthier, more resilient teenager to um, to manage those, that much information. Again, it's kind of like the teenage version of what we're all dealing with. How do we manage all of this input yeah. and how do we extract kind of, knowledge from information it's there's a lot of information but is there a lot of knowledge and that's sort of similar you know to the social media situation so yeah it's it's, it's challenging what would you say I, I mean every parent i'm sure it's different you know with many families but what is something or one of the challenges that comes up more frequently when you're dealing with you know the relationship between parents and teens yeah I would say that um, there are a few um, very common scenarios that I see. Um, one is what I call the trust-mistrust cycle, right? So teenagers developmentally are, um, their job is to push boundaries. And what that means is they're going to do things that push our boundaries. Yeah. And so I find that parents who have particular issues around trust get very triggered. And what I see is this dynamic where, you know, the teenager says, I'm going to be at the pizzeria, they end up at their friend's house, parent feels mm-hmm. betrayed, lied to, they, they don't, you know, they feel understandably um, disappointed, they don't necessarily understand that 95% of teenagers lie, and that lying 
minor lies can actually be kind of developmentally appropriate. It's not that we want teenagers to lie, but we need to kind of accept a certain amount of it because it can be a version of, of creating boundaries and separation. Right. So, again, how do I react to Johnny was at the pizzeria or he was at his friend's house? Can I calmly have a conversation with him later or am I going to react and feel personally betrayed so that Johnny feels like, well, my mom doesn't even understand me. All I was doing was like going with everyone else. They changed their mind at the last minute. Now Johnny has to up the ante and go, you know, smoke pot with his friends on the hill the next day. Mom feels extra betrayed. And so the sense of teenager feeling misunderstood, parent feeling betrayed is a pretty common presentation that I see. And, you know, the answer is, again, not that we want our kids to lie or do drugs or drink or do any of these things, but what I talk about in the book and what we know through research is that the bond between the parent and the teenager, again, not that your teen is, wants to be with you all the time, but at the certain important moments that you're, you're connected with your teenager enough to be able to have the important conversations with them. And so if your teenager lies to you, can you be calm enough to then address it at a later time and understand sort of the inner workings of your teenager so that you're not reacting from some past wound, right? Like, my mother lied to me all the time. My ex-husband right. was terrible. He was a drunk, and he never came to, you know. you know. And so, again, how do we keep our own cool as parents? Um, so that's one, that's one common presentation, I would say. You know, the other is, you know, use of vaping and alcohol and, and substances, which is another, again, challenging arena that has, you know, the extreme presentation where the teenager obviously needs attention and support in his own right to, to manage things. Um, and then we have, again, the, um, the normal uh, experimentation. And, again, how do we as parents react to some of the um, behaviors of our teenagers that particularly upset us so as not to alienate the teen and to stay in connection? So um, how do I... You know, recently a mom, you know, the teenager went to the prom, was caught vaping, and then was, you know, had to be suspended from school for two weeks. Definitely not an optimal scenario. It's not something yeah. we want from our, you know, our teenager. Um, but, you know, she needed support because she had a, a family history of a lot of substance use. So her mind went cycling into he's going to end up like, you know, drunk Uncle Charlie, you know, sitting right. on the bench, you know, homeless. And it was like, well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe this is just an experimenting moment where he got caught with some nicotine and he's going to be fine. How do you, again, manage your own worst fears so that when you come to the table with your teen, you're not a raving lunatic? Just to put it, you know, do, clinical do you terms share there. that? <laughs> it's pretty appropriate in my house. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. do you, so, so let's say you have, there's a history of, Alcoholism in your family, and you're, you know, uh -huh. as a parent, you're you, you're more attuned, you're more alert. I mean, not yeah. that, but you know, you're looking for it almost sometimes. So, but yeah. do you share. Is it appropriate then? So, let's say they did get caught drinking at the prom or whatever. You know, they yeah. got trouble, but it wasn't yeah. terrible. But it, it, but it was an incident. They were too young to be yeah. doing it. Is it appropriate to share why you're so scared about it? Like, yeah, is, or does that scare the child more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question, Kathleen, and I think I always say that it really depends on how the parent is addressing it and uh -huh. the personality of the teenager. So what do I mean by that? So, you know, teenagers want to be unique and independent. No teenager likes to be lumped into a category, right? So right. just knowing that, again, teenagers aren't looking for information as much as you would think, right? Can you please tell me my family history so I can figure out how to be the best person? Like, I've never heard a teenager say that, right? So <laughs> the idea is if I'm in a calm state and I'm not freaking out and yeah. my kid is in a kind of an open moment to be listening, I might say, you know, I know you're a great kid. Again, trust is another thing I write about in the book. Trust is the currency of the teen years. Anytime you take away trust or you show that you mistrust them, you've lost, like, $500 from the bank account because yeah. trust is the emotion of I'm independent. You trust me. You don't see me as a nine-year-old. You see me as a, you know, I could be 25. I could be living on my own in New York City right now. What do you mean clean up my room? It's like, right. oh, I do get it. You are very independent. 
But so, um, yeah, so again, if you're in a calm state and you can go, you know, I know you're probably going to experiment. I trust you to live your life the way you need to live it. But just so you know, you might be someone who could be a little more susceptible to, you know, drinking in a way that isn't that helpful to you. So, you know, again, if you want to know more about that, I can talk to you about it. Again, it's sort of giving them the trust, not being too heavy-handed about it, and definitely not painting a broad stroke. Like, yeah. you smoke one cigarette, you will become like Uncle Charlie. Like, no teenager. Then they just feel misunderstood. Like, my mom doesn't get the world. My mom doesn't get me. So, again, you have to be very sort of sensitive when you are trying to give, you know, download information because they're not that stoked on the lecture yep. thing. And I wonder, too, that if you did give them that, that information, that they would be, you know, because they're, they're picking up signs from us as well, and they would pick up that fear in, in the parents saying that, so they'd be less inclined maybe to be open and honest, fearful that their reaction would be, oh, my God, you are on that path. You know, almost like, I don't want to scare my parent and make, her, make them worry even more about this now. I've got this under control. I think that's, I yeah. share it with them. Thank you for bringing up that point. Yeah, because, again... The other thing that is known through research, but also I see clinically, even though our teenagers, many of them, you know, they're, they're pushing back, they want to be independent, they're still very tuned in to how we feel and our, and our worries and our, you know, kind of mental health status, right? So as you said very correctly, um, they don't want to worry us. And so we want to use our sort of worried expressions um, judiciously. It's like, oh, you know, you were just tripping on acid and you jumped right. over the bridge. Maybe next time, leave the bridge or the acid out of the equation. Right. I mean, I'm joking, but right. this is what no, right. so you know, right. sometimes you need to push it, push the information out. Yeah. But if you do it in a calm way, they're more likely to keep connected to you and 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 keep the information flowing from their end. Exactly. There was this one thing somebody said to me too, and my kids were, I guess, a lot younger at the time, but about. <clears throat> saying you're sorry, like mm-hmm. also having the, the yeah. gum, you know, the, the strength, I guess, to go to, like, mm-hmm. if you overreacted or if you flipped out or you've done whatever, that yeah. as much as it's going to kill you to, like, let your, you know, let your guard down a little bit, but you have to yeah. let it down. What about that kind of, you know, that with the kids? You mean saying you're sorry? Yeah. 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 It's another great question, and it's something that I have really, um, it's a, it's a very powerful thing to do. And, and, you know, as I've done this work over many, many years, I've realized why. So, again, if you think about teenagers, think about the Fonz from Happy Days, you know, the idea is they're, they're very much on this precipice of one moment I'm holding your hand and in your lap crying, the next moment I'm off on the train yeah. to Paris by myself. Like, their identity is back and forth between I'm scared and I know everything, right? So... Again, when you say you're sorry, what you're sort of doing is you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a person too, I'm real, and I, I, I'm kind of giving you this um, trust. I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you with my own emotions, and I'm also letting you know that I'm wrong. And there's something about, especially for, you know, for all humans, we all like it when people can apologize, but especially for teenagers because we can get so into this mode where they're doing everything wrong and they're sort of not wanting to do anything wrong. When, when you say you're sorry, there's a, there can be a real softening in that, in that relationship and in that sense of, oh, my mom's kind of strong enough and she's trusting me enough to say she's wrong. It's kind of like she's coming down to my level, if you will. And again, teenagers, because they're so trying to have the puffed up chest and be so big, um, it really, there's something about that that feels very, um, connecting. So, again, it, it all depends on you and your teenager. If you don't feel comfortable saying sorry, then it's not right for you. It, so much of it is, you know, in your own authenticity and your own comfort zone. And what about, so, you know, there's the times we were talking about before where you're sort of insinuating upon them your fears or your, you know, like maybe alcoholism or whatever it is. But what about situations where you see them putting the, the pressure on themselves? Like, for example, with mm. grades or, you know, I've seen that with some kids. And I know it's not coming from, I know, you know, or I assume it's not coming from the parents, but these kids are putting this pressure on themselves, such an immense amount. How do you handle that? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And again, that kind of um, internal pressure can show itself in a number of different ways, right? There's a, there's a continuum. So it can be, you know, just sort of mild perfectionism, anxiety, I want to do well, which can be very adaptive, right? And then there yeah. can be, I can never fail. And if I fail, you know, I've had a patient who, you know, tried to commit suicide because he failed, uh-huh. you know, failed the test, right? So, um, you know, again, there's, I think there's different approaches and different formulations based on that. But I think, you know, all we can do, and this is what I write about in the book and many people have written about, it's not obviously what we say, it's what we do, right? It's mm-hmm. to be the person who's, you know, a type A person working super hard and, you know, kind of silently valuing all the things our culture um, really values, which is, you know, success and beauty and money. If, if, if we're not being honest with ourselves about that, if we're afraid that our child is going to end up not being perfect, then, you know, we have to kind of look at that part of ourselves. But if, if we're feeling like our child has that and we're not putting that pressure on them, you know, the best we can do is just continue to, again, model, you know, how life can be in a more relaxed way and, you know, have very short discussions. We know, you know, from research that the, the perfect discussion time is about five minutes for teenagers, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, again, it's commenting on other people and how, you know, how they're enjoying life. Or, again, it's, it has to come from the heart and has to come from an authentic place. But I think, um, you know, and also understanding where that pressure is coming from, right? Each child has a different experience of that. For some for some teenagers, they're really smart and they just really want to do well in life. And so they for them, you know, that pressure is sort of worth it. For others, it's a matter of, um, you know, they've never failed before, and so the fear of failure is is so scary. So, again, even if you feel comfortable, you know, sharing your own failures. It's like, yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I did this, and then I got fired from this job, and, you know, everything worked out. Or, you yeah. know, again, these types of things can be helpful. And are there signs, and I, I know this is not an easy there's no easy answer probably to this, but mm-hmm. are there certain things as parents are, you know, going through this, mm-hmm. certain signs that we should be attuned to or that we should be looking for that are certain, not, maybe not dangerous signs even, but, you know, even early, early on warning signs that we should just sort of be keeping a closer eye on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, it can be challenging because, you know, part of what's normal for teenagers is to shut us out a bit, right, is yeah. to be in their rooms more, is to be <laughs> on technology with their friends. So some of the things that we would think of as, oh, this person's depressed, this person's not, right. you know. Um, so, again, I th- you know, I think, I mean, there are the major warning signs, like, you know, talking about suicide or cutting yeah. or reporting depression, um, the, you know, with teenagers, sometimes if they stop doing things that they're, they've been interested in for a long time, that can be a sign of kind of, you know, one symptom of depression. I'm a little hesitant to give, you know, a, a symptom picture just because, yeah. um, again, there's so many normal, so much normal fluctuation with teenagers, like, you know, oh, I don't want to do volleyball anymore. They've been doing volleyball their whole life. Well, they're 14. They just decided to change. So there's a lot of things that can seem like problems that are just the normal experimentation. So, but I do think, you know, again, if the the communication is breaking down, if your child is not interested in things that he or she was interested in in a serious way, you know, if they seem down more than a few few days at a time or down for more hours of the day than they're, positive, um, you know, these are, it's, you know, it's always helpful to get a second opinion and talk to someone about it to see, is this normal? Is this hormonal fluctuation? Or is this something that they're kind of spiraling into that might need some support? Now, is this, is this, frown, is it, I don't know, maybe a very frowned upon practice or taboo practice, but if, if they're, if they have a close group of friends that you're sort of familiar with, could it be, I don't know, would it be, or is it looked not favorably to maybe suggest to a friend and say, you know, you know, is so and so okay? Is you know, mm-hmm. Tommy bend down? I, I don't know. Is, what? Yeah. Is that ever 
appropriate, or does that just cause more of a breach of trust because then the kid, your child might say, you went to my friends, and I don't know. Do you, yeah. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah. So, again, I think that there would be two basic guidelines that I would follow, right? So one is the severity of my concern, right? If I think my, kid, my child is severely depressed, suicidal, cutting, using substances to an extreme degree, I'm going to do, you know, any means possible to get information. So I'm yeah. calling up Johnny and Mary and the mother and the teacher. Um, if it's not that severe, I would look to my relationship again with the teenager. And again, I call it like, which hill do you want to die on? There's A baskets and B baskets as parents. Right. We, we want to um, compromise the trust only for A basket items. So because yeah. the trust is the glue of the relationship, if I th- I'm wondering how did she do on the math test, I'm being silly, right? Yeah. Okay, you know, I call a friend up. How did she do? That seems like an, uh, you know, unusual, that, that breach of trust isn't worth the information right. we're getting, right? right? But if I'm concerned, hey, she's been kind of not eating, she looks, seems thin, you know, of course I would always talk to my child first, but if it feels like there's something that isn't being revealed, again, if I have a good relationship with my daughter or son, and maybe I know her friends, I feel like, you know what, the information I'm going to get is important. And if I have a good relationship with my daughter, I'm willing to, quote, unquote, spend that, you know, I don't know why I'm using so much money terms, but it seems simpler. You know, I'll use that $25 of trust and say, you know, when she gets mad at me, I'll be able to communicate and say, you know what, as a mom, you know, sometimes I even say to my daughter, what would you have done if you were a mom? I mean, of course, she always comes up with something completely different than I did, but, you know, you know, I was concerned about you, and so that's why I did it. So, again, is it severe, and do you have enough trust so that you can repair the rift? If okay. Because, you know, most teenagers don't love it when you talk to their friends, but doesn't mean you should never do it. I guess that goes to something, too. One of the strategies that you talk about, sort of like big picture versus petty details. Like, yeah, yeah. Focusing on like that tiny little math grade as opposed to the overall situation. Exactly. Yeah. So one of my strategies is enlarge the lens and what, you know, again, what, what I found, you know, it, it sort of came from, again, the developmental arc of the teenager, right? The teenager is trying to be as big as possible, right? So, when 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 you're treating them like a nine year old and they're fifteen, or if you're yeah. going getting into the petty details of their life, they're feeling that you're not trusting them. They're feeling like, God, doesn't my mom get how I am? So again, just that the metaphor of, of enlarging the lens. It doesn't mean that you don't know what they're doing. It doesn't mean you don't get into the details of their life. But again, kind of like the trust issue. If I'm going to push into their life, if I'm going to get into the petty details, do I really need to? What is the outcome? And another thing, you know, it's like, can I control the thing that I'm trying to find information about, right? So a lot Mm -hmm. of parents, like myself, you know, you want, you're, you're still feeling somewhere emotionally like you want to help them, you want to control them, you want to be the one to, you know, support them and kind of paint the picture of their life. But they're, they have the paintbrush now, right? They're in, in control. So I always say, well, if you found out that information, you know, what would you do with it anyway? Would your teenager listen to you? So, again, it's just that yeah. sense of kind of, I always say, you know, you're kind of at the edge of the pool and they're swimming in the middle of the pool rather than when they were younger you were sort of surrounding them in the pool. It's like you're at the edge. You might even be out of the pool watching them. You're, you're giving them that distance. It's brutal. It's brutal. It's brutal. Oh, we we said this, and, and it's when they were younger. But there was a um, a principal who used to say, you know, you'd, you'd pick up in the car line, and six kids would get into the car in front of you, and your child would, you know, and, and they're they're a group of friends. Go go off to a party, and you know, those terrible instances when your heart literally is shredded, and your child gets into the car, and you've got to put on a happy face, and and I guess that even they were young at that time, but even teenage years that sort of situation can kind of happen and it's so hard to not bring in your own like what you're envisioning what they're feeling you're sort of putting on them and this principal used to say don't interview for pain don't then get them in the car they've seen what just happened just like you saw what just happened don't then sit there and say so did you see that so-and-so just went in their car and you know so and, and in teenage years a similar thing as well i guess about this don't interview for pain don't and it's but it's so hard to not 
like you're saying, like you want to help them. It, it's killing you, and you want to mm-hmm. let them know how you want to help them. But I guess by bringing it up and rehashing it, you're just making it even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And again, you know, the book is based on this idea of how are our teenagers, you know, separating our own pain from our teenagers' pain, right? So Endure Emotions is the first um, chapter, and it sounds, again, it's, it's, it's a simple concept, but it's very challenging to do. So let's say, like you said, your teen gets into the car, there's something terrible happening, figuring out, okay, I'm all of a sudden feeling a sense of loss or abandonment or anger. Yeah. You know, is this um, my feeling or is this my teenager's feeling? And I always say, you know, it's like when you're screaming at the plant, it's like it's not the plant, it's you. Like we can tell <laughs> when it's us. It's not right. that mysterious. However, it can be challenging with our kid because they, you know, Annie Lamont has a great line, our kids are our our hearts running out, running around outside of us, you know, and that's the way it feels. It's like, wait, you have my heart and you're doing something that's hurting me. Get back in the car. (laughs) So, but again, they're not your hearts running around outside of you. They're separate people. So that knowledge of self, that knowledge of, oh gosh, you know, I just saw that my daughter got rejected from her friend and I have issues about rejection. Let me just take a few deep breaths. Let me do my own meditation. Let me just take care of my own inner child, if you will, um, which is a concept that a lot of people think is a bit corny, but it really does work. It's like, whoa, I'm crying inside, and my daughter's listening to music. Hmm. Right. right. <laughs> One of us is an upset. <laughs> <laughs> and you, through, um, you went through advanced training in yoga and meditation, And and when did you decide to sort of incorporate it all together so so it's not just mind healing, but mind And how, like you were saying, how to, like, get your own zen, like, calm yourself down before you you then can realistically and intellectually handle what's going on, as opposed to emotionally. Yes. Yes, and so, you know, it's challenging, and I know, you know, many people do yoga now, which is wonderful, and, you know, I can't say that I'm someone who does it every single day, and I think, again, that's just another piece of this. When I was thinking of writing a parenting book, it, it all kind of came to me. I said the book kind of wrote me. I didn't write it, but I was someone who was, would always kind of recoil at the thought of reading a parenting book. I didn't, I never wanted to hear, you know, it's like you're doing your best. So my job, my book is very non-judgmental, very right. non sort of do this, you have to do this, but the reason I'm bringing that up is that, you know, to even think about doing yoga and meditation when you're a parent sometimes just feels like the last possible thing you could ever do. (laughs) So again, this isn't about like, you need to be perfectly zen. It's more, um, you know, again, just aspiring, like, do I have two minutes, let's just say, pick up, can I turn off the radio and just do a few deep breaths and kind of check in with myself? Like, hey, how you doing? Did you eat today? Did you shower? Like, are you insane or sane? Like, just like three questions can help at times. So I don't like to present this as like you need to become, you know, the perfect guru. It's more just, you know, the principle of yoga is the yoking of the body with the spirit, right? So how are you in your day just taking a moment to look at your own quote-unquote spirit. Are you looking out the window at a tree? Are you, like, you know, looking at your favorite sweater on Etsy? I don't know. Are you watching the baseball game? It doesn't have to be any major spiritual undertaking, but am I pausing in my own brain and in my own body and in my own breath so that when my teenager presents me with this overwhelming situation, I have some bandwidth to figure out, you know, kind of what's happening, which can be hard. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. And then, and brutal. then if you don't react the right way, and you wish you could, you, and you, you inevitably, a couple hours later, it's going to kill you. You're, you're just, it's going to eat you alive that you didn't handle it the right way. And now you have to get over, you know, you have a fight with your teenager, and they leave for school in the morning, and an hour later, yeah. you can't breathe, and they're not going to be home until 3 or 4 or 6 or 8 at night. Yeah, yeah. That I think is just a terrible feeling too. Yeah, it is, and that's where again I think you know, being authentic, being real when they come home, being able mm-hmm. to have a second chance. I mean, we're all human, and you know, I you know, they always say we write books for ourselves. This book I wrote for myself. You know, I can have 
challenges and temper and, you know, kind of be pushed to my edge with my own child. And so, how, you know, how do I, how do we just forgive ourselves, right, and just know that we're doing our best? And then if we are in a process of trying to grow and change, we're also modeling that for our child. It's like, yeah, mom's not perfect. No one is. That doesn't mean that we don't try to look at ourselves and understand and make things better, but we don't have to sort of stew in guilt and misery about anything. You know, it's sort of like live and learn. I, I, and one of the things you write about, too, is how um, 10% of communication is verbal, and so much of it is nonverbal. And right. It's so, and that's even almost harder to contain sometimes or to manage. Yes. Yes, and, and this is why, again, the book is really the principles are all about, um, you know, an inward journey, right? And so, yeah. you know, parents will come, and, I, you know, I've said the same thing. Well, I didn't tell them that I felt like, you know, I was ashamed of them. I didn't tell them that, <laughs> you know, I thought that they should do this. And, again, we all know that we all know that we don't usually, especially with people that we care about and our children are exquisitely tuned in to every eyebrow raise. And again, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect. That doesn't mean that we have to, um, you know, pretend to be something we're not. It's just more how do I tend to my own emotions, my own life, my own um, challenges so that I'm not non-verbally communicating one thing. You know, again, it's like, calm down, calm down. It's like, right. oh, okay, that's, you're not feeling too calm with to me. You know, I mean, I can, I know that a lot of my patients are like that. But you know, that's that can be me. It's like take a deep breath, and I was like, I'm not feeling the breath, mom, at all. You know, <laughs> so you know, you got to walk the walk. So when you were writing the book, how long yes. did it take you to write the book? Yes. So, you know, the book evolved, actually, all of the vignettes and the ideas evolved over, I'm going to say, about a decade, but the, the writing of it was about a year total, mm-hmm. but I'd been writing it, you know, I'd been collecting the data for about about 10 years, so just kind of culling this idea of your teen is your teacher, your teen, what your teen is reflecting back to you. You know, what you're, what you're so upset about your teen is likely a part of you, and how do you, when I would see parents shift inside themselves, there's one wonderful story of a woman, she was one of the first patients who kind of showed, taught, she taught, taught me all of this. Um, she came from a, a family where, you know, father was alcoholic and abusive to mother, and she had what I call the Scarlett O'Hara moment on the hill. I'll never go hungry again. We all have those moments psychically of like, I will never be involved with an addict. I will never be an addict. No one around me will ever drink alcohol. So lo and behold, her daughter ends up at a very prestigious college addicted to cocaine. And this is the beginning of this woman's journey to look, to hate her daughter, to see all of her internal darkness projected Mm -hmm. onto her daughter. And then the path of sort of, um, reconciliation between them and the, the mom's ability to then deal with all of this sadness inside of her that she never would have dealt with if her daughter hadn't been an addict, right? right. So again, this idea of, and again, sometimes there are problems that teenagers have that don't have anything to do with you, and that mm-hmm. that's great. But oftentimes their problems get tangled up with our own, and that's what the book's about. How do we untangle it so we can just, you know, have a a cold and not get pneumonia. Again, that's a little bit of a negative analogy, but it works. <laughs> and, and, you know, they always say, you know, you know, jokingly, oh, they're going to be talking about that, you know, what I did some years from now. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what about when you come to sort of that, that realization that, wow, I've been, you know, I've been putting this on my kids all this time. It's my issue, whatever this is. And you kind of realize it. But now yeah. we're a couple of years in and, you, you know, the, the hopeful part of this, that we haven't permanently damaged our kids with, with our own baggage. Like, well, yeah. how, do you, how do you sort of come around the other end of that when, when you do yeah. make that realization? Yeah. Yeah, again, you know, from, from my own experience and from all the patients I've seen, you know, I, you know life is not, um, you know, pain-free or bruise-free. So, it's not to let yourself off the hook and say, you know, oh, well, tough luck on my kid. But I think, again, it's, um, you know, am I continuing to grow as a person? Am I learning from, 
you know, this experience. Um, as Maya Angelou said, you know, I, I, I do better because I know better. Am I doing better when I know better? Or, or am, I, am I the person who's hitting my head against the wall and not even realizing it, right? So I think, there, I think we get some credit for seeing what we've done and then changing and then forgiving ourselves because we're all human and we all have things and, and our children will inevitably trigger our deepest our deepest wounds because we love them so much, right? Dostoevsky said, you know, hell is the inability to love, and I think the opposite of that is how we see parents, right? Like the love is so consuming that it's it's hard to keep the rest of, you know, the emotions sometimes out of the mix, and that's just what it, it is to be a parent. So I think all we can do is grow from the experience, and that's what the book's about. How do we grow from the pain and, you know, grow ourselves and, and also then help our teams to grow. So, And have you ever had situations where someone might come in and say, you know, my mother did this with me and I see myself now? You know, the thing I would, as a teenager, saying to my mother, I would never teach my kids like or do that to my kids, and I'm doing exactly yeah. the same thing to my kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, what I see and what's, which is really common, right, we either... We either are like our parents or we try to be the exact opposite, which can be equally challenging because anytime it's extreme, right? It's like, well, should I spend all my money or should I save all my money? It's like, well, why don't you send, spend some and save some? So, again, you know, I think, um, unfortunately, we can't parent without the experience of good parenting. We don't the, – the, the, the guidelines come internally from – multiple iterations of love and understanding and so again we have to give ourselves a break and you know as a therapist I'm biased but I do think one of the best things parents can do for themselves is have a guide whether it's a therapist or a mentor Mm -hmm. just again not to hold the experience completely to ourselves but to be able to have someone to support us through it um, I think is you know, is very helpful because, again, we're, we're either going to do something that's something like what we had or we're going to say, I'm never going to be that person, and then we're going right. to be kind of clumsily walking around in the darkness of some opposite experience, which is, like, equally preposterous. So there's not a lot of good options here for us, are there? No, there are. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> the book has it all in it. That's the book. No, I'm kidding. See, right? Clearly, I, I, anyone who just listened to this, uh, first of all, I can't believe we're running out of time right now. I could talk to yes, you about this so forever. Yeah. And ever, and everybody's like, okay, enough, Kathleen. <laughs> but I, there's so much, and it's so, it's, even though my kids are like on the later end of this, and I, yes. like it's not too late. <laughs> well, no, and with the feedback I've been receiving, is, I mean, I have grandparents reading this book. I have people working with teenagers, and even people who don't have children, because the book is really about how does the world trigger you. And the teenagers right. just happen to be the particular thing that's, that's triggering the parents. But, again, it's it's sort of a general um, guide for how do we grow. But, yeah, and, and we don't stop being a parent no matter how old our children are, really. And, and like you said, I guess just relationships in general can trigger something like that. Absolutely. So it would help yes. us sort of reflect, maybe stop, breathe and reflect in any relationship where you see sort of maybe your reaction isn't the way it should be. Exactly. Yes. I'm working on my second book and there's going to be another relationship that we're going to be looking at. I haven't decided which one. I think it's couples. But yeah, any any intimate relationship will be an opportunity for healing if you're willing to look at how the other person um, activates things that are in there to be understood by you. So that's what I've seen in my practice. and It's, it's so um, interesting and fascinating and terrifying <laughs> what I've got to find out about myself. <laughs> exactly. Who really wants to know all that stuff? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Darn it. Well, again, there, there's, there's, there's a risk of knowing it and there's a risk of not knowing it. Right. So right. It is. Yeah. Well, I, it's been so for everyone listening tonight, as, and I'm sure you're like, wait, don't stop. I don't want it to be over. Um, you ha- uh, Clearly, you have to get the book immediately. A New Theory of Teenagers. Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Team. And, Krista, what's the best way to get the book? So um, it's on Amazon. Uh, 
one of the most direct ways. It's also at, you know, many booksellers. If you want to go to your local bookseller, I can't guarantee it would be there. I don't know all the details of where it is over across the country. Um, right. Amazon's probably the most direct. And is there a website they would go to or just or Google? Yeah, well, you can know. You can just go to Amazon and you can type in a new theory of teenagers. Or you can go to my website, com. It's on there, too, but it's just as easy to go on Amazon and just type in a new theory of teenagers, and it'll come up. I, I don't know how to begin to thank you for coming on tonight and thank sharing you. all these, this wisdom and this, you know, it's so much to think about, and I don't think there's anyone tonight listening who is not going to continue thinking about this when, when we end the show tonight and for weeks and months and years to come, because yes. if anything, it only makes you better. I hope so. Well, that's that's the point, to make us all feel better and to grow in some of the challenges. And, um, and, and I think built into that is also some self. It also, it, we can be a little bit less tough on ourselves, too, maybe, because we understand Absolutely. it happened. Absolutely. We can, I mean, I think when we understand where something's coming from, we can always be more compassionate to others and to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So self-knowledge usually leads to feeling of, oh, you know, I'm okay. I'm not perfect, but I'm okay, versus yeah. if we're a little bit overwhelmed and confused by things and not really looking at the problem. It's like anything. If we don't know what's wrong, our computer's breaking down. If we don't know what's wrong, there's a sense of panic. If we figure out what's wrong, it's kind of the same theory with ourselves. I find that my patients feel at ease once they kind of see the pattern, you know, and we're always afraid of seeing it because it is scary to face ourselves, but in my experience, it's never as scary as people think it is. Right, right, like, right, at least seeing it makes it understandable. As opposed exactly. to, I don't know why I just blew up like that. I don't know what is wrong with me. I can't control myself. Exactly. That's never good. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it happens. Well, we can, all, we can all relate. We can all relate to those right. moments. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, again, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. Um, yeah. Everybody get the book immediately. We'll, we'll all, you know, with all the crazy stuff that's going on right now, at least we can make ourselves better to treat each other better. I think thank if nothing you. else, that's going to come out of this book, and it's so important right now. So, again, thank you so much, Christy, for coming on. Thank um, you, I Kathleen. hope to have you on again. I can't wait to that next book. So you come back on okay. again. <laughs> Great. Or just anytime you want to come on and make us all feel better, I'd love to have you back. And everyone out there, thank you so much for listening tonight, and we'll see you again next Thursday, Um, same time, same place, Um, and we'll see you then. Good night, everyone.